So this morning we'll be continuing moving through the book of First Peter to take a look at how can we live out the gospel in such a way that we obey Jesus' command to love our neighbors as ourselves and impact our communities for the glory of God. Now today we're going to talk about really one of the most impactful things that we can all do to be better neighbors, and yet it's the one thing I think we all try to avoid doing, and that's the ability to suffer well. Yay! Welcome to Mosaic Church. Now, I know at hearing that, many of you are probably thinking, man, I knew I should have stayed home this morning to catch up on my to-do list. And that's because suffering, if we're going to be honest, is just, man, it's a difficult topic. No one likes to talk about suffering, let alone how we can do it well. I'm probably going to say some things this morning that are not going to sit real well with many of us in this room. And to be honest with you, as I've been studying through the passages that we're going to preach on today, and I've been looking at what Peter is trying to say and communicate, I mean, there's been some things that haven't set well with me either. But listen, if we're going to be a church community that preaches the Word of God and lets the Word of God dictate our circumstances rather than our circumstances dictate the Word of God, then we have to preach the whole Bible, not just the parts that give us warm fuzzies. We've got to look at the parts that challenge us in ways that we may not want to be challenged as well. So to do that, let's pray and ask that God would steady our hearts and give me the right words to speak so I don't miscommunicate what Peter's trying to say here. Father, we thank you this morning for gathering us together as your people. I thank you for every person in the audience today, whether they call themselves a Christian or not. We all are going to experience suffering at some point in life if we have not already. God, we thank you that there is one who stands above our suffering. There is one who can sustain us through our suffering. So Lord, would you steady our hearts this morning as we look at the passage of Scripture that you've laid on us today? Would you give me the right words and the wisdom to know how to say it? And would you be glorified above all in Jesus' name? Amen. Now, C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote this. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. In other words, suffering is inevitable. I mean, even the most surface-level look at our own lives and the lives of those around us will scream this reality. Not only does Scripture tell us that suffering is inevitable, but that it's also a reminder that this world is not as God intended it to be. And if we can understand those two realities, that we are all going to suffer and that God actually has a purpose in that suffering, then it would also enable us to point others to the fact that there is something or rather someone more valuable worth living for. That's exactly what Peter is going to talk to his original readers and to us today in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now Peter is telling us that our suffering, in our suffering, we can rest in the promise that our trials are serving a larger purpose that will eventually work out for our ultimate joy and God's greatest glory. And to see how Peter says that will happen, I want to look at three aspects or three ways we can have joy in the midst of our suffering today. Number one, I want to look at the internal joy. Then I want to look at the external joy. And lastly, we'll look at the joy giver. All right, the internal joy. Uh, Peter is writing to an audience of Christians all around, scattered around the Roman Empire who have been experiencing vast persecution, have been suffering great pains, and many of them have begun to kind of question God's goodness. They begin to, to, to be tempted to walk away from the life that God has called them to in Christ Jesus. And Peter is saying that they can actually have joy, not just get through the suffering, but have joy in the midst of their suffering. And it can help them and us understand how, to help them and us understand how, he uses a real interesting metaphor here. The metaphor of a goldsmith smelting gold. He says, in this you rejoice, so now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. He goes, he says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, know how many of you know anything about goldsmithing but when a goldsmith when they mine the gold and they get it out of the ground or the mountains wherever they find it the gold ore comes out they just partnered and contaminated with all sorts of impurities other minerals other metals things that devalue and distract from the gold itself now for the goldsmith to get the gold to a place where he can work with it as pure gold and make jewelry or in the, the first century audiences mine the objects of worship for local temples, those kind of things, the goldsmith has to heat the gold up to its melting point. And what happens is the gold liquefies these other minerals and such, their melting point is much higher and so those begin to rise to the surface. And so then the goldsmith comes along and with his skimmer he skims off the impurities from the surface of the gold so that what remains is almost, mostly, 100% pure gold. So catch what Peter is telling us here. He's saying our faith is like gold. It's precious. It's valuable. But that suffering is like the heat that brings our faith or the gold to a melting point. Which means Peter is saying that our faith has impurities mixed in with it that if not removed will continually corrupt our desire and obscure our desire to love God and prohibit our ability to love others as we love ourselves. And so the suffering creates a heat that brings these impurities to the surface, at which point we can repent of those things and God in his grace will come along and skim those things out of our hearts to refine us and refine our faith And make it more pure so that we not only look more and more like Jesus, but we become more and more like the people God intended us to be in the first place. Now, let me pause for a moment so I can make sure you don't hear something I'm not saying. Sometimes suffering is just suffering. I have many friends, many in this congregation, others outside, who 
have suffered great things, many who have suffered the loss of a child. And what I'm not saying is that that kind of suffering is somehow the product or the result of your sin, that God's punishing you for that. That is not what Peter's after right here. Sometimes suffering is just the consequence of the fact that we live in a broken world. The results of Adam's sin and rebellion against God. Sometimes suffering is just suffering. And it needs to be mourned. And it needs to be walked through in the context of community. And yes, God can do a work in our hearts of those things. And I believe God will do a work in our hearts in those things. But I just want to make sure no one walks out of here feeling like Pastor Brett said that I've suffered this thing because I have impurities in my heart. Because what Peter's talking about to this audience is a different kind of suffering. The kind of suffering that reveals issues and, 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 and objects in our faith that are distracting from our pursuit of God. And that's the kind of suffering we're going to deal with today. Again, Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, says this. We can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what exactly does suffering rouse us to? Well, number one, it reveals the idols or potential idols in our hearts. I mean, the very definition of suffering is to experience loss. You realize that? Like we suffer when we lose physical comfort or physical health. We suffer when we lose relationship security. We suffer when we lose financial peace. So we suffer when we become aware the fact that the person or the, the thing that we were looking to for comfort or security or peace has either failed us or has been taken away. So it's when we get sick or injured, we begin to suffer. When we get in a fight with that special someone and there's friction in the relationship, we begin to suffer. When the stock market crashes, we begin to suffer. And how we respond in those moments reveals what ultimately our hearts are trusting in. See, when you begin, begin to feel that financial pressure, when your spouse says something hurtful to you, or when your body begins to ache and sag in places that it used to not do so, do you come undone in those moments? Do you go to a place of depression? Do you begin contemplating suicide? Does your life come unraveled when those comforts, when those pleasures, when those things you're trusting in are taken away? If so, then that's God allowing suffering to bring your impurities to the surface, revealing the places in your heart where you're tempted to trust in creation rather than creator. Well, this is obvious when we see the drug addict or the workaholic or the adulterer. And we're like, man, that person needs some kind of intervention. And they're suffering. And we say, well, it serves them right. That's, just, that's the path they chose. They needed that intervention. But when we see our friend who loves their spouse or, or who's seeking that promotion at work, going through a difficult time and experiencing suffering and trials, we begin to question, man, what is God doing here? Is God even good? Is that even fair? And the reason we question that is because we tend to look through a lens of external behavior where God looks through the lens of internal motivation. See, when life comes unraveled, our heart is revealed. See, and if my need to be loved, to have financial security, 
to have a good reputation, if that need supersedes my need for God, then listen, I need as much intervention as the drug addict. I need as much intervention as the guy who's addicted to porn. Because there is something in my heart that is interfering, competing with, and prohibiting me from chasing after the one thing I need more than anything. That's more of God. See, in both cases, it's putting our hope and our trust and our identity in someone or something other than God. And not only will that person or thing ultimately fail us, but our expectation for them to provide that kind of salvation will ultimately crush them as well. See, impurities found in gold, they could be things that we throw away like sulfides, but they could also be things like silver or copper, metals and minerals that on their own are actually valuable in and of themselves, but when attached and combined with the gold, it distracts and devalues the gold. So there are good things that God has called us to. Me loving my wife is a good thing. But if my love for my wife and my need for her to love me back supersedes my love for Christ, well, now it may be silver, it may be, it may be some precious metal, but now it's attached to my gold and it's distracting from what God has actually called me to. And the reality is this, the only way I can truly love my wife unconditionally is to love God more than I love her anyways. Those are the impurities that distract from what God has called us to. And God in his mercy, and listen to me, in his loving kindness, will at times allow suffering and pain to arouse us and to awaken us to what our hearts are actually trusting in so that those impurities might be removed we might experience the ultimate joy that is found in trusting him above all else. So number one, it arouses us to the potential idols in our hearts. Number two, it reminds us of our need for rescue. Now, have you ever stopped to ask the question, why do we get so outraged and flustered when we see or experience suffering? I mean, why does it bother us so much? I mean, I've never met anyone who, upon seeing suffering or injustice, just looks at it and goes, huh, that's interesting and then walks away and goes about their business. If you ever meet someone like that, you probably don't want to be their friend. There's something absolutely wrong with them. Because suffering, injustice, it it awakens us, it outrages us when we see those kind of things. We autorize, something in us autorize up and say that is not how it ought to be. Something ought to be done about that situation. I was actually reading an article the other day read that the National Institute of Health invests over 30 billion, with a B, dollars a year in medical research for the American people alone. 30 billion dollars a year in medical research. Now, why is that? I mean, think about it. If sickness and disease and death were just a normal part of life, as, as the, the, the evolutionists would claim, then why, why bother? Why fix it? I mean, why devote that much time and energy and resource into trying to solve the problem of sickness and disease if it was just a normal part of life? I mean, if survival of the fittest is the way things ought to be, then why should we give a rip about what's going on in the Middle East today? I mean, just let it play out and let's see what happens, right? But no, we rage against such things and we ought to. You know why? Because it's not how God intended this world to be. This is not the world that we were made for, and suffering reminds us of that reality. In another one of his books, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, 
The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, suffering awakens us to that reality, to the the fact that we need someone outside of this world to come and rescue us and put things back together. Because listen, thousands of years of human history have done one thing, have, have proven one thing. We cannot solve the problem. In fact, the more we try to take control of the situation and try to right things ourselves, the worse the scenario tends to get. No, we need someone outside of this world. We need someone who rules with perfect righteousness to come and make things right again. The Bible says that is exactly what Jesus in this very moment is doing. It may not look like it when we look at the news, but the Bible promises that after his resurrection, Jesus started the process of putting things back together again. And through us, his people, God is working to do that very thing. And why? Because he desires the same thing we desire. To see things as he intended them to be. To see suffering and death come to an end. Which brings us to the third thing that suffering awakens us to. It connects us to the heart of God. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3, as Isaiah is predicting what the Messiah would be like when he comes, he writes this. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, my wife and I have three children, 11, 9, and almost 7. And between our first and second, we experienced our first miscarriage. And I know there's many of you in this room that have been through that. And I can say this, that's the kind of pain that you, it can only be understood through experience. And so we had that miscarriage. Then we had our, our, other, our second and third children that were born. And then after the third, we had three more miscarriages. And in the midst of those miscarriages, there was a pain and a grief and a sorrow that flooded our hearts like I cannot explain in any other way. And there was lots of questions and lots of uncertainty and doubt creeping in. And in the midst of that, as we, sought to, we, we, we chose to trust God and say, God, we know you're good and you define our circumstances, not the other way around. So Lord, what are you doing in this? Show us the purpose of this suffering. And in that, God came to us in the Holy Spirit and he said, I too know what it feels like to lose a child. And the pain that you're experiencing right now that you wished would never come upon you, that you would not wish on your worst enemy, that pain that you feel, that you try to avoid, I willingly stepped into. I chose to succumb to that. And you know why? Because I love you. And I want you to know me. And in the midst of that deep heartfelt pain that we are walking through, God came and he did not take the pain away, but he brought a peace and a joy, not a happiness, but a joy that in the midst of that, we could say, God, you may not deliver us from this pain, but your joy and your peace will take us through this pain and connect us to your heart. And out of that connectedness to his heart, we were able in the years that followed to minister that same joy and that same peace into the lives of other couples who experienced the same kind of pain and miscarriage. After that fourth miscarriage, we felt God calling us to adopt. And so we jumped into the adoption process, excited, full of joy, thinking, man, this is going to be easy breezy. Well, needs to say, it has not been anything of the sorts. I know many other families in here who have adopted can relate. And our adoption journey, what, what we were told would take 12 to 18 months, we are now nearly four years into it. It took a long time for us to get matched, but when we were matched in last December with 
set of twins, a little boy and little girl, which we had been praying for. And God answered our prayer to the most finite detail. And we rejoice and tears of, of joy streamed down our face when we got the phone call and they sent us an email with their pictures and we got to look at them. Mm. Then as the months went by, we began to receive photos that raised concern of the little girl, seeing that she wasn't developing quite right and something might be going on. We showed those photos to other doctors and neurologist friends that we have and they said, man, get some video. So we asked them for some video. They sent video. And sure enough, in the video, you could see that clearly something was not developing right. And so we sent the video over to our neurologist friends. And they said, it looks like something neurologically is definitely going on here. You need to send her to a neurologist. And so we paid lots of money and did lots of research and had the little girl sent to a neurologist in her home country. They did MRIs. They ran scans. They took test results. And they sent all that back. And long story short, she was diagnosed with a severe form of cerebral palsy, the kind that's going to require 24-7 around-the-clock care, potential feeding tubes, wheelchair, physical therapy on a daily basis. And as we got that news, oh man, like a sledgehammer to our chest, realizing that this little girl is going to require the kind of care and support that we just can't offer with four other children at home. And we wrestled through it and we prayed through it. And man, we wrestled with God. God, clearly this can't be. There's got to be some other way. We're missing something here. You've answered every detail in our prayers. Why now? Why would you bring it to this? And one morning as my wife was praying or really rather wrestling with God, asking that very question, the Holy Spirit came and he said, listen, my daughter, I've called you to a minister in the adopting community. I'm opening up doors for you to speak into the lives of families in the adopting community. And you know what it's like to give birth to a child and you can speak out of that. You know what it's like to lose a child and you can speak out of that. Now you know what it's like to have to give up a child that you thought was yours. And there are hundreds of birth moms who get lost in the process and lost in the shuffle that no one talks about and no one prays with that need to know that my love endures even in the midst of that difficult situation. It's connecting us to his heart. Now, shortly after we made the decision to have to discontinue the, the process with the twins, we got matched with another baby girl. And the twins got matched with a 30-year-old couple who has no other children who've been praying for twin siblings, and God had begun to speak to them about adopting a special needs child. And Melissa reached out to her and the mom, and they emailed And the mom responded back, and it turns out that before they even accepted the referral for the twins, she had read Melissa's blog in which Melissa described the story of us having to to walk away from that scenario. And, And when she read that and then saw the file of the twins, she realized she put two and two together and realized, oh my goodness, these are the same twins. And so they connected, and it has been amazing. In the midst of that, not only did God find the perfect family for those little that little boy and little girl. But they said the moment they opened up the file and saw their pictures, they knew these are our children. They said that the scripture that Melissa had just happened to post at the end of her blog that she wrote was the exact same scripture that they've been praying over their adoption process for two years. And what God has revealed to us in the midst of that suffering is that he too longs for his children to come home. He too aches and, and breaks 
for the lostness and the, 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 the brokenness of his children and desires that they too would find the love of a perfect heavenly father and that he loves these children more than we do and that in the midst of our plan, our, what, we, what we think a life ought to be, he comes in and says, oh, my children, you have no idea. I've got a way better plan. And so now my family is going to have the opportunity to impact the life of three children and not just two like we originally thought. See, suffering awakens us to this reality that God has acquainted himself with suffering because of his love for us. It connects us to his heart in a way that nothing else in this world can. And Peter is telling you and me that all of this serves to bring the impurities of fear, selfishness, pride, rejection, impatience, whatever, to the surface so that our Heavenly Father might graciously skim them off and set us free to know him more intimately. Now, that's the internal joy that we can have in times of suffering. What does the Bible say about the external? I mean, what does this have to do with neighboring, right? We're talking about the art of neighboring. So what does the internal joy of suffering have to do with neighboring? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let's look at what Peter tells us about the external joy. Suffering gives us the opportunity to display. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now to understand the external joy that Peter is pointing us towards, we have to first understand Peter's presuppositions in this passage. See, Peter assumes that people are going to ask us how we're able to have joy in the midst of our suffering, which means he also assumes that we're living life in such a way that the people around us, our our neighbors, know what's going on in our lives and how we're dealing with it. Listen, people are not going to come ask you about your joy in the midst of suffering if they don't know who you are. It's not a random conversation you have while watering the lawn. It only happens when you're so connected with those around you that they're familiar with what you're dealing with and they see how you're responding to it. You see, the whole purpose for the internal work God wants to do in us through suffering is for the greater purpose of the external work God wants to do through us in the lives of others. In other words, God does a work in us because he ultimately wants to do a work through us. See, suffering isn't just something that happens to Christians. It happens to everyone. And all over our neighborhoods today, there are people who are suffering and looking for answers. People who are trying in every way to find something to save them from their pain and frustrations and loneliness. Listen, we're the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. Yet today, our nation takes more prescription antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications than any other nation in the world. We spend hours on social media hoping to feel connected to someone. We spend thousands of dollars on the latest gadgets. We hop from relationship to relationship looking for something to deliver us from our suffering. And Peter's saying that what we actually need isn't something to deliver us from our suffering but someone to hold us through our suffering. As Christians, we ought to be able to show our neighbors how that's done. See, as we've engaged in conversations with our neighbors, as we begin 
to get to know them as we begin to ask them about their stories. We've been able to share our story as well. Being able to talk to them about our adoption process and the frustrations we've experienced and the, the pain that, that we've walked through. And it's gotten to where when we see them out on the street now and they come over and they ask, hey, what's the latest with the adoption, man? What, what's going on with the twins? What's going on with your new little girl? And they're, they're engaging and asking us and through it all, we're not going, hey, man, it's all good. Praise God. Because they know us. We say, man, it's hard. We're wrestling. Now, we're up crying last night. But we know God has a plan. We know God is good. And our circumstances don't, don't determine that. He determines our circumstances. So we're trusting God in the midst of this. And it's my neighbor across the street who, who's Muslim. It's my neighbor across on the other side who's an atheist. It's, they're all asking, how are you handling this? But the reason they're asking is because relationships are being built. See, those conversations are only happening because we're intentionally building with those people. See, and here's the reality. If we don't understand the internal joy God gives us in our suffering, we'll never be prepared to give an answer to those questions and experience the external joy God gives us through our suffering. There's only one way that our hearts can rise above our own suffering and experience this type of joy. And that's point number three, to see the joy giver. So Peter closes this passage with this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, you see what Peter is not saying here? He's not saying, hey, after telling us that suffering will accomplish an internal joy and provide an opportunity for an external joy, he's not saying, man, so just suck it up and deal with it. He doesn't say, so, so stop looking to the things of this world, that have to, what the world has to offer, because it's all evil anyway, and we need to hunker down and hope that Jesus comes back tomorrow. No, Peter says God is up to something in the midst of our suffering. So look to Christ. And remember how much he has loved you, that he also suffered on your behalf, that he's overcome the greatest suffering you could ever experience, separation from God. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, writes this. He says, while Christianity was able to agree with pagan writers that an inordinate attachment to earthly goods can lead to unnecessary pain and grief, it also taught that the answer to this was not to love things less, but to love God more than anything else. Only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace. Grief was not to be eliminated, but seasoned and buoyed up with love and hope. And you see what Keller's saying here. He's saying the most ultimate suffering that we can ever walk through is the loss of relationship with God. In fact, all other suffering that you and I experience grows out of the seed of the fact that we've suffered the loss of God's presence in our lives. See, it's because we feel alienated in this place. So we lose God. We feel alienated in the home that he's put us in. The home itself has been broken. And now we go in search of looking for someone or something to alleviate the pain, to, to take it away. So every other suffering that we experience grows out of the seed of suffering the loss of God's presence in our lives. 
But what Peter is telling us, and what Keller is echoing, is the fact that when Jesus took on flesh, he not only sympathized with us in hunger and thirst, rejection from those closest to him, but he went beyond sympathy and became our substitute. And on the cross, he suffered total alienation and separation from God the Father so that you and I could be reconciled and reconnected with God. See, when you see that, when you see what he was willing to go through, that he was willing to subject himself to the kind of suffering that you and I would wish would never come on us, when you see what Christ was willing to do, it floods your heart with security, with hope, with an everlasting love that not even death can take away. And therefore, if suffering is to experience loss, And if the greatest loss we can experience is the loss of God's presence, then the love of God becomes something that not even death can take away in Christ. When we see that, then any suffering that we experience in this life is only temporary. And therefore, we can see it for what it is, a tool that God allows to make us into a people who shine with the brightness of hope in the midst of others' darkest pains. To the loss of your job, or that relationship, or even physical health, it won't make you come undone when you realize it's only serving the greater purpose of bringing you into a deeper, more intimate knowledge of who God is. It only strengthens our intimacy with Him. When our ultimate hope is in having more of Him, and we realize that not even death can take that away from us, then we're free to face our suffering with the internal joy that God places in us to display it in an external joy that God works through us because we're connected with the joy giver. See, Keller goes on to say in that book, he says, Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took it so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. And that is my hope of what we can be as a church. It's my hope of what God is making us into. A people who look gorgeous to our neighbors, who look gorgeous to our co-workers and to our friends and our family, not because of the fancy car we drive, not because of the nice threads we're wearing, but because in the midst of our suffering, we can remind them and display to them that there is someone way more valuable worth living for, that there is a hope that is an anchor to our soul. There is, there is a purpose and a pursuit that God has called us to and a joy in our souls that cannot be rocked even by death itself. Listen, I don't know what kind of pain or suffering you might be going through today. I know it's something. I know it's something. And I know the temptation is, is to blame God, to shake our fist at the heavens, to, to just throw up our hands and 
give in. Or maybe it's to just comb over with religious talk. Say, no, man, praise God. God's good. Listen, God doesn't want you to do that either. Whatever your experience or whatever suffering you're going through right now, here's God's call to you and to me today. Feel the weight of it. Feel the weight of it. Let the weight of that suffering not terminate on your own despair, but let it point you to the fact that I've carried a greater weight. Let it point you to the fact that I've willingly endured so that you might know me. Let it point you to the fact that this world is not your home, that I have conquered even death itself, that the very thing that threatens to destroy you when placed in the hands of a loving God will only serve to strengthen you in your resolve to chase after him with more and more passion. Father, we thank you today. Thank you that you stand above it all. No matter what comes our way, no matter what grief or sorrow tries to avail us, no matter what pain or suffering threatens to rob us of our joy and our comfort, God, I thank you, you stand above it all, that Jesus, you are seated on your throne today, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over pain, victorious over suffering, and God, whatever we're going through today, I pray that you would reach down in the midst of it and not yank us out of our suffering, but be with us and walk with us through our suffering, that it might fortify our souls, God. It might reveal your love to us in a more deep and intimate way. God, you do not waste a pain. You do not waste a hurt. We thank you that the greatest suffering the world had ever witnessed, your son hanging on a cross, also served to accomplish the greatest display of your glory the world has ever seen. So God, our prayer is simply this. Would you be glorified in our pain? Would you be the lifter of our heads and our sorrow? Would you be the comforter of our soul when comfort seems to have left? Would you gird us up in your strength? You said in our weakness, your strength is made perfect, Father. We're going to hold you to that. We're going to trust you in that. Lord, there are people here that may not know you. They may not have surrendered their life to you. Your life is coming unraveled. Things don't seem to make sense, and they can't make sense of it. I'm asking right now you would speak to their hearts. And as we sing this last song here in a moment, Holy Spirit, would you come and and minister to their souls and reveal to them that, Jesus, what you accomplished was way more than just dying so we get to go to heaven someday. It was reconnecting us to you so heaven can come back to us today we can experience that peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, speak to us now. In Jesus' name.